Um, I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16, uh, as we look at a, a, we look into a window of Christ's involvement with his disciples, and his journey with them is his journey with you. I want you to see that his uh, inputs with the disciples are inputs that he's giving to us today. Um, the disciples sometimes give us head-scratching moments where we say, why are they so just missing the point of what Jesus is saying or misunderstanding his power or forgetting who it is that they're talking to or dealing with in terms of their relationship relating to Christ um, face-to-face? Um, they're no different than you and I are, though. I mean, we, we, I'm sure we would leave... Um, the Lord scratching his head as, you know, like, why, why, are you, why are you not responding to me in the way that um, you should because I've been so faithful to you? I, the, the discouragement that we see with the disciples at times uh, is, is somewhat of an encouragement at the same time where we go, man, why aren't they getting it? Well, at the same time, we might look at our own selves in the mirror and say, why don't we get it sometimes? And the Lord is so patient and faithful with us to scoop us back up, put us back on track and say, no, you're you're off track. You're not thinking spiritually. Now think spiritually. Now, the reason the Lord can work with his disciples then, like he's working with us now, is simply this. We all have the same Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We have something that is incredible in terms of uh, our opportunity while on earth. And that is, we have the Holy Spirit. We have what Paul called um, the mind of Christ. We have the ability by the Holy Spirit to think thoughts like Jesus thinks. We have the opportunity while here on earth to see life through the same eyes that Jesus saw life. And that's having the mind of the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 2.16, but we have the mind of Christ. It's incredible. The mind of Christ, the spirit of truth. We have the ability to think like Jesus thought, to see life in a way that is different from someone who is naturally minded. There's really two kinds of people in the world. There are naturally minded people and spiritually minded people. There are naturalists who live within an ensconced bubble, who see life in terms of being born, being here, getting all you can, canning all you get, and then you die, and that's it. That's what basically the world has. They might think in terms of an afterlife, in terms of a nirvana, in terms of uh, existential reality after life, being a ghost or something. They might think in terms of a version of hell, but they really don't have a true conception, a biblical conception of who God is, who is transcendent outside of time and space. They don't really understand eternity going on forever. They don't have a real conception of judgment. A lot of people are annihilationists. They just believe that once you shut things down physically, that it's over. You just kind of cease to exist and nothing could be further from the truth. Having the mind of Christ opens up your realities to what's going on at the heart level with everyone around you. What really matters? What really does not matter? Why we're living now and why we can live in light of eternity. That's the mind of Christ. Money can't buy something like this. When God saved you, he gave you the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit in you as the ability to think and see and reason beyond a natural-minded person, a naturalist. We're we're 
Naturalists, they have so many gifts. They can invent, they can explore, they can philosophize, they can psychologize, they can theorize, they can manage, they can create art, science, and theater, and, and do amazing inspirational things. But they can't know God. They can't yet know God until the lights are turned on by the Holy Spirit. There's sort of this process that God wants us to go through where we come to know him, but then where we come to know him on a deeper way, where we come to embrace who Jesus is for all of who he is, and then we come to see that we can walk a life with Jesus with the mind of Christ. That's the journey he's on with the disciples, and that's the journey he's on with you, taking you to another level of understanding with who he is and how to perceive life. Matthew 16, if you skip down to verse 13, it's where he confronts the disciples and he asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He wants them to come to grips with who they're talking to. Who do they say that I am? And we know Peter is going to say, you're the Christ. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is going to look at Peter and say, flesh and blood. You're blessed, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Now, was Peter already a believer? Yes. But I'm saying that you can come to faith in Christ through a crisis, through a need to have your sins forgiven, to start your journey. But that's just the beginning of your journey of knowing who Christ really is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the shepherd of your soul, the one who's infinite and at the same time intimate. It's incredible to think about who Jesus is and growing in this understanding is all preparation for the next level of life that he wants you to endure. He wants to strengthen you for the journey. He wants you to not only know who Jesus is, but he wants you to know him by having the mind of Christ, by engaging in the Holy Spirit in your life. 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that we behold the glory of the Lord being transformed from, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is all the process of salvation or sanctification and growth. Now, I believe in lordship salvation. I believe when you come to Christ, you have to bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. But I also believe that at that initial confession, you are just beginning to scratch the surface of who the Lord truly is in and of himself and involved in your life. And that's this journey. That's what this round of discipleship Jesus is introducing to the disciples This is the third and final year that he's on earth with the disciples, bringing them to this level. And I don't believe in some sort of two-step, you know, sort of two-level kind of um, faith. There's a whole false teaching, deeper life movement that says you have to, you have the Holy Spirit and then you get zapped a second time. It's Keswick theology um, that is uh, errant and wrong. It was born out of the 1800s, two-tier spirituality. I believe that the disciples had all of Jesus when he was here on earth, and they needed to grow in their understanding of all of who they had in front of them. And I believe in the same way you have all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to have. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but you need to engage in your understanding of the Holy Spirit and, and understand that you're either living in the flesh or you are yielded to the Holy Spirit. And as you are yielded to the life and the Spirit, God will engage you in greater ways. 
In 2 Corinthians 7, I was reading my devotion, devotions this week how the Spirit of God came upon the temple at the temple dedication where Solomon was dedicating that temple to the Lord. And the fire came in representing the Spirit's presence and all the priests bowed onto the pavement. Their faces literally were down um, in homage before the Lord. What grabbed me was what they said. It said, the priests worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. What I love about that is they couldn't even enter into the most intimate presence of the Lord because the fire was so blazing and hot and powerful, but their, their response was face down worship with gratitude. Why were they saying that? Why were they giving thanks? It's because the bigger God becomes in our lives, the more we realize that we don't deserve him whatsoever. It's amazing grace. It's amazing to think that God in his holiness should have zapped us and sent us to hell um, immediately at our sin, right? We deserve hell. We deserve that. And instead, God gives us grace. He draws us near, says, I want you to know me more. I want you to know me in a bigger way for all of who I am. And I want you to live this through the eyes of the Holy Spirit with the mind of Christ. That's what chapter 16 is inviting us to explore, understanding God in a new and greater way by his Holy Spirit. So we're going to learn this in a two-step process. It's having the mind of Christ, living in the strength of your helper. And the first way to learn is what not to do, right? A good coach will say, hey, don't do it this way. Let me show you what not to do. And then let me show you by contrast what to do. Point one, step one is learning by those who didn't have the mind of Christ. And this begins our passage in chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Listen as I read. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The introduction of chapter 16 is the attack of the Pharisees and Sadducees again. These are the people who did not have the mind of Christ. The Pharisees were people who had much of, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized They were fastidious with the law. They had extra biblical writings and sayings and traditions and commentaries that they wrote in terms of laws that they were fastidious to keep. The Sadducees were strange bedfellows with the Pharisees. Um, They they really were not two groups that were connected. Um, They were two, uh, almost like two political parties that were completely opposed to each other, that co-joined to take on Christ because they were so devoted to getting Christ out of their lives and off the scene that they colluded together to ambush Christ. This would be like liberals and conservatives coming together where there would be no reason whatsoever for them to fight somebody, but they had Jesus as a common foe to get him out of there. Um, The Pharisees were committed to the law. They were committed to the truth. They were committed to the Old Testament law. They weren't believers, but they were committed to it. And they wrote all about it, and they talked all about it all the time. They believed in the afterlife. 
They were content as a religious organization to be under any political party that would let them wield the power of conservative power, um, this power structure as possible. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were like the liberals, and they were the ones who were the aristocrats, and they were underneath um, uh, Rome, and they were committed to Rome loyally, saying, you are our leadership because you're allowing us to do what we need to do. We don't really hold, we hold to the Bible, or we hold to the Old Testament teaching, but we don't believe in the oral traditions. We don't believe in, in the Bible in the same way that the Pharisees do. We, co- we only hold to it in a moral way just to um, keep our power base in line and in structure. We, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife, really. They just, they just were liberals. They were the Sadducees. And you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are on an equal threatening mission to seek and destroy Christ. They want to eliminate him. He's a threat to their power structure. If you want to read about how the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like each other, read in Acts 23, 6 through 10, where Paul's on trial under the council, and he brings up the resurrection and how he was a Pharisee, and he, he believes in the resurrection because of Jesus Christ, and suddenly he's exposing the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are part of this council group to get rid of Paul, and they start to fight each other on such a level that the high council has to get Paul out of there because they were going to rip Paul apart because they were in this ravenous fight against each other Suddenly, it's weird. They, these diametrically opposed two different sects wanted to eliminate Jesus. Sound familiar? People are trying to get rid of Jesus all over the place. You have to stand for truth. This is not um, a political agenda that Jesus has here. He's going for hearts, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are there to test him. By the way, uh, Jesus was never under Um, a test so as to prove himself to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're saying, show us a sign. Show us something from heaven. Show us a magic trick. Um, You know, prove that you're the real thing. I mean, they probably already heard that Jesus had, you know, healed the sick, raised the dead. I'm sure they had um, seen and and witnessed these things. They had heard that Jesus had fed the 4,000 and the 5,000 before, and then he had just recently read, fed the 4,000 from Decapolis, and he's coming back from that across the Sea of Galilee. He's saying, show us a sign. They're saying, show us a sign like that. Jesus is under no, um, he's under no obligation to show a sign. He doesn't have to prove himself to unbelievers, to hard-hearted people. You know Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate sign. He is the Messiah who has come. And frankly, if you don't believe in Jesus, when he's standing there face to face with you, you're, you're beyond help. You're beyond him doing something that's going to bring you to saving faith. So he was never under that kind of pressure. Jesus showed himself through signs and miracles to validate who he was, but he was doing it for people to believe in him, to see that he's the creator and he's over the demons, over the devils, over the world. He's Messiah, but he was never out there to prove himself under some kind of test of scrutiny. Remember Pharaoh, when God sent the signs and wonders as part of the deliverance of the, of the chosen um, people of Israel, Pharaoh's heart um, hardened itself to signs, Exodus 8.32, and then God ultimately hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 
Jesus is showing himself to be who he is by his words, not by some sort of trick. He turns the table on them and exposes their unbelief with verse 2. He answered and said, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What Jesus is doing here is saying, I'm not going to show you a sign. And the reason is, is because your heart isn't open yet. They don't have the mind of Christ. They are what I would call a person, what 1 Corinthians 2 calls people, naturally minded. This is who most of people are. They are naturalists. You can read the weather, but you can't see the Messiah who's standing right in front of you. You can't really see the signs of the times. These are people who knew the Bible, especially the Pharisees, and they couldn't connect the dots. They wouldn't connect the dots. And say, what is Jesus saying in terms of a red sky at night, a red sky in the morning? Well, this goes back to people who would navigate the Sea of Galilee. In one sense, it could be Jesus being sarcastic, saying you can use weather lore or folklore, but you can't interpret the Bible in terms of the Messiah standing in front of you. But in another sense, what Jesus is saying scientifically is that people would predict weather patterns in terms of a red sky at night and a red sky in the morning. Um, I did a little research. It basically talks about highs, high-pressure systems and low-pressure systems that are blowing in over the Sea of Galilee. They would particularly blow from west to east. And so the sunlight at night, um, you know, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Well, if the sun is setting and, and the wind is blowing westerly, that meant um, to someone who was nautical that there was going to be um, smooth sailing that night because what was blowing in, what could be seen as blowing in through the particles in the red sky is a westerly wind, which, which meant a high pressure system. High pressure systems would, would calm the environment, would still the seas and make things normalized for smooth sailing and, and navigable waters. And then in the morning, if, if um, the, the sun was rising and the west, westerly wind was coming, it meant that the high-pressure system had been there, and now it was moving out, and there was going to be a low-pressure system, and things would become turbulent and would be a rough day. So something that they used to say and sing and, and to remember this is a red sky at night is a shepherd's delight. A red sky in the morning is the shepherd's warning. And, you know, I used to lifeguard in Virginia Beach on the East Coast, and we would, um, in the morning or in the evening, look behind us to see the weather that was coming in from the west. And if you had um, dark, you know, thunderclouds that were coming in, it was pretty obvious, we're going to have some bad weather, and the wind's blowing, and things are getting choppy. That's pretty discernible. And if it's, you know, if it's blowing out or blowing in, you can kind of tell those things. And what Jesus is saying is a naturalist can tell the signs of things on that superficial level, but you have no clue about who's standing right in front of you. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I think we try in our best to do what we can do. To, to stay sane in an, unsa- an insane environment that's around us, 
where people are cross-dressing, where people are doing all kinds of transgender things in front of us. And then you have people in the world trying to normalize that, trying to legalize things, trying to make laws so that we can't say or just even react to people around us and things that are going wrong. And we don't want to right the wrong just by trying to correct culture. I mean, we don't want to politically just use politics to solely correct the culture. And I'm for voting in the right people and trying to, trying to see our government to be as biblically based as possible. But at the same time, uh, we have to see through the insanity and say we can discern the difference on a sinful level as to what is really going on. People are sinning. People are wanting their sin. They're wanting to mask their sin, to legalize their sin, to hold on to their sin. And that's why there's this facade in the world that we can see as despicable and debased what the culture is saying is not. These are the signs of the times that spiritually minded people can read where people who are naturalists cannot. Look at verse 4. What is it that they want? It's, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. What's going on here? Jesus is saying, what you want from me is you want to hold on to your evil, you want to hold on to your adultery, and you want me to do a magic trick for you so you can say, okay, I have a little bit of God, and I, well, I hide all my sin at the same time. That's what these Pharisees and Sadducees were trying to promote. It's evil. I was listening to Christian radio. I like Christian radio, but some of it is really pop psychological. I was listening to it on the radio about a guy who's a megachurch leader down in the lower 48, and he was talking about positive reinforcement in marriage. And I think that can be helpful to tell your spouse positive things and encourage them for yourself and for the health of your marriage. But that's as deep as he was going. And I was wondering, why is he doing that? He's, he's talking to a broader audience where a naturalist can use positive reinforcement in their marriage um, for the sake of health. But why aren't you talking about sin and repentance and reconciliation and, and using the Bible in your marriage and in your household to bring a household of faith. I mean, how are we supposed to protect our kids from the media and the internet? I guess we could try to put them in a box of isolation where they never are going to see anything, right? They're never going to have any access to media. I think that's a fool's errand. And if a kid wants to lust and wants to go tunnel out underneath the you know, protective measures that we put on things, they're going to find a way to get to their sin. What we need to do equally, not just to protect their phones and protect their media, and I think we should do that, protecting them from themselves, but at the same time, you got to shepherd the heart, and you got to inform the conscience with the Word of God. Otherwise, we have nothing. We need to try to lead our kids to Christ and point them to Christ and, and give them the truth all of the time so that they can grow and so that they can come to know Christ and have the mind of Christ. That's what protects people from being a wicked and adulterous generation. People will come to church during Christmas time. They'll come and they'll give a nod towards Jesus, but they really want to hold on to their wickedness. And they want to use religion as a way to cover their unrighteousness. People will come to church even as a form of penance to try to, you know, relieve the guilt of their sin, but they're really not going to be able to do it. Jesus said, no sign will be given. No sign will be given. 
to it except for the sign of Jonah. What's he doing there? What's he saying there? Is he just throwing them a bone? Well, what Jesus is doing, I think it's important to connect the dots, is he is reiterating what he told them in Matthew chapter 12. When the Pharisees came seeking a sign before, he said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, and he's doing it again. Now, the word of God is what pointed to Christ. It is a sign. It is something that is deeply spiritual that people either accept or reject. And so when people put God to the test and say, show me God, show me where he's doing anything in this world. You know, if people are doing that, just show them God's word and let them react to God's word. The truth is what sets people free if God is opening their heart to see it. Second Timothy 3.16, it's breathed by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. This is the scripture. It is the graphe of the Old Testament. It's, it's the truth. It's what Jesus used to um, confront Satan himself. He spoke the truth. And so again, he's saying, what about Jonah? Remember Jonah. Remember Matthew 12, 38 through 41. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seek a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For just, verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Jonah will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus' point of talking about Jonah is Jonah was an evangelist. He was a rebellious evangelist, but he ultimately was an evangelist. The great fish swallowed him up three days and three nights, which is to sow a seed that when Jesus is swallowed up um, by the tomb at death for three for part of three days and three nights, this is the gospel. And at Jonah 2.9, when, when Jonah was ultimately spat up on the beach, he was saying, salvation is of the Lord. So all of that is to sow seeds so that Pharisees can believe later. But at the same time, Jonah was this great prophet, and he was representing Christ. And Christ is saying, look, I'll leave you the sign of Jonah, which is basically saying, Jonah was a great prophet. I'm the greater prophet. Are you going to see me for who I am? Jonah went and confronted people's sin, a wicked and adulterous generation. I'm here. I'm standing right here. You're asking for a sign. And I'm telling you, Jonah is the word of God. And it's, it pointed to me, Jesus. And everything synchronizes. And remember, Nicodemus, he rejected Jesus at first. He went to Jesus by night in John 3. He was the great teacher but ultimately, Nicodemus believed, and Saul, who persecuted Christ, he believed later. He was blind, but now he saw he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. So some Pharisees did believe. They did connect the dots from what all the Old Testament pointed to. But at this point, they didn't. Let me just boil it down this way. Where can you go beyond Jesus? If people are asking you to prove Christianity is real beyond Jesus. How can you do that? Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He's the final word. If Jesus can't convince people, nobody can convince people. If men can't see God in Jesus, they won't see God in anything. Point people to Jesus. Point people to the scripture when you're trying to win them to Jesus. Win them to have the mind of Christ. 
And these people at this point did not want the mind of Christ. And so what did Jesus do? Look at verse 4. So he left them and departed. I leave you Jonah. Connect the dots between me and Jonah. I'm the, I'm the greater prophet or not. And I'm leaving. You're naturalist. You can, you can understand nature. But can you understand me? Now, let's look to the next section. That's what it looks like to not have the mind of Christ. This is what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. Verses 5 to 12. Listen as I read. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, this is interesting. Again, it shows the transparency of the, the disciples. How baffling it can be for us to go, how did they not see what Jesus was talking about? They just had watched Jesus confront the Pharisees and Sadducees. He just exposed them for not being able to get it and not being able to understand who they were talking to. And then Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He warns them, watch out for this. But what they're doing is what um, I think William Barclay said. He said, all the disciples had on their minds at this time was bread. They're running on nothing but bread, is what he said. They're just like panicking. They just come over from the Decapolis. There was... 12,000 people that had been fed, 4,000 with husbands and wives and kids, a lot of people, a lot of Gentiles, seven hampers or seven giant baskets of bread had been collected. And they're like, oh, were we supposed to take some of that bread with us? Because uh, uh, we're, we're without bread. We're on the other side. We're not sure what's going on. What do you mean, beware of leaven? Because are, are, are the Pharisees going to make bread and they're going to put leaven in and we're going to be outside of compliance with the law? Is that what's going to happen? We need flat bread, not leavened bread. What's going on? They're just trying, they're reacting to what Jesus is saying. And again, instead of us condemning the disciples, we need to um, celebrate the fact that Jesus doesn't give up on them because he doesn't give up on us when we react in the same way. What? Oh, life circumstance? Oh, we're supposed to act this way? Here, the Lord's been faithful to us all the way, all the way up to this point, and we should learn the lesson to trust him, and then we're, you know, unhinged again. That's what the disciples are going through. They're confused. They're confused. And they're blaming their confusion on that they just forgot the bread. And Jesus wants them to not think like a naturalist, but to have the mind of Christ. Think spiritually is what he's trying to get them to do. It says, verse 7, they begin discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Verse 8, but Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you don't have bread? Jesus had just lauded, not 
a week before the Syrophoenician woman. Remember, he went to Tyre and Sidon, met with the one woman who was raised in Babylonian or Canaanite, you know, sort of moorings. And, and yet she knew who Jesus was. And she was willing to come under the table, metaphorically speaking, and say, I'm going to eat the breadcrumbs like a doggy that come off. Where I get it. You want to feed your people first. You want to feed the Israelites at the table. They deserve it. But can I just be the little doggy that's, that's receiving breadcrumbs? And then Jesus says in verse 28, a woman, mega great is your faith. And then here he's letting out a big sigh as Matthew 8 talks about. He, he's just, he's, he's saying, oh, you of little faith, why are you doing this? Why are you relapsing? Why are you thinking in terms of legal dynamics or physical dynamics? Can you not think in terms of faith dynamics? Faith dynamics, having the mind of Christ. Look at verse 9. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? These are hamperfuls that were gathered, 12 containerfuls at the 5,000. And verse 10, or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered there? Can't you remember? In other words, don't you realize you have me? You have the greater prophet. You have me, the Messiah. We have no lack of bread. You have Jesus. This is what we need to remember. We have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit who is sent to us as our helper to think like Jesus does. Jesus lives in our life. We have him. We shouldn't become unhinged. You won't need bread because Jesus is there. This is graciousness that Jesus is giving here in verses 9 and following. These are rhetorical questions. Do you not yet perceive? He's trying to open them up. Do you not remember? He's trying to get them to think. Verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Another rhetorical question. And then graciously in verse 11, he gives the same warning again. So he's worked through this whole process. Remember, I made miracle bread for the 5,000, for the 4,000. You had huge baskets full. You really aren't in need of bread. I'm sufficient for all these things in your life. Now I'm going to give you the warning again. He repeats it. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Think spiritually now. And then verse 12, then they understood. (laughs) Then they got it. Okay. Isn't that where God wants to bring us to? Where we just let down our guard and we go, okay, yes, Lord, I'll think spiritually about this issue or that issue in my life. These rhetorical questions get to their hearts. What is the leaven? I just want to point that out. Leaven is um, an agent that is injected into bread so that it doesn't turn out flat. It turns out big and expansive and spongy, so it makes bread good. In this case, leaven is a picture of the injection of false teaching that's put into truth that messes up your life. It'll blow your life up. It's a, it's a bad, evil agent. What is it? Well, Luke 12, 1 gives us a hint. Jesus says here, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, how does false teaching and hypocrisy go together here? Well, when the Pharisees basically made the law about moral, external obedience. What they were doing is they were saying, if you do these things, then you can use them as a cover-up to secretly in your sin be a hypocrite at the same time. Your external facade, the good face that you put on at church, 
The moral external obedience that you wear as a shield is all this external facade that you have on the outside where people think you're just fine, while on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're full of lust. You're full of, verse 4, being a wicked and adulterous generation. On the outside, you honor me with your lips, but inside, you're dead. And you go, I can't relate. Absolutely, you can relate. That is the war of your soul. You're fighting either to be holy, to live for the Lord, to be right with him by his Holy Spirit, by having the mind of Christ, thinking thoughts like Jesus thinks about sin and the world and your flesh, or you're letting yourself go, playing the game on the outside while you nurse sin on the inside. It's one or the other. And Jesus is exposing that and saying, beware of that. Don't let Satan inject that leaven into your life. That's the hypocrisy. So you think one way or the other, spiritually or naturally. Now, I didn't have a good conclusion. I didn't have a conclusion at all, so I wrote out some applications. And they'll come up on the screen and there's some typos. But you'll just have to forgive me because I didn't look over them. I didn't think Nathan was going to put them on the screen, and so he did. But they'll also be in the, um, on the web um, next to the sermon you can click on. So they'll be listed for you if you want them later. All right, but let's go through them. Difference between thinking like a naturalist or having the mind of Christ. Number one, category one, a naturalist understands something lasting forever only in terms of someone's lifetime. The reason I bring this up is in media or you know, shows that you watch or movies, you'll hear people say, or even in commercials, hey, if you do this, that'll be forever. Well, what a naturalist means by that'll mean forever, be forever is the next 10 or 15 or 20 years that you have left in your lifetime. That's forever. For a Christian, forever is forever, like we believe in eternity. It's two entirely different ideas. You're either ensconced in this world and your forever is, um, you know, how your health is doing now, how your job is doing now, or your hopes and dreams, um, whether they're being fulfilled in this life. That's what people, that's what matters to a naturalist. It affects the way that you react to life-altering circumstances, how you react to losing your health, job, or your dreams. Um, A spiritually-minded person understands forever in terms of life that's now and after death going into eternity. It affects the way you invest your time. It affects the way you invest your money. It affects the way that you invest yourself in your relationships. Everything is different for somebody who has the mind of Christ. Your mind is opened up for a timeline that's now but going into eternity. Category two, a naturalist will find hope in self as the highest person in creation. So your natural talents and abilities matter extremely. People need to recognize them. You need to have high honors in this lifetime. You need to have attaboys, pats on the back, um, not to be disrespected. That matters. We are the highest form of creation to a naturalist. Self-actualization matters. Um, Secular humanism matters. Self-esteem matters. This is what matters in this life for yourself, and you manipulate circumstances to gain your desired outcomes. You manipulate through your abilities, you leverage whatever you can to get your desired outcomes. A spiritually minded person finds hope in the providential hand of God. It's not saying you're not talented, not saying you're not supposed to earn money or 
or make a living or provide, but you do it with the mindset of trusting God for his intervening help where he feeds you every single day, provides food, clothing, and shelter for your life, and you're seeing God through answered prayers, bolstering your faith in the word and in your life. Third category, a naturalist will always worship nature. That's all they can do. They worship the creature rather than the creator, Romans 1. They worship self. Um, They have idols that are basically based on looking in the mirror. They're worshiping themselves. Uh, Whether a pagan idolater who's involved in animism, they worship themselves or they worship nature in that way, or they're involved in organized religion, they'll worship people or priests, but they're always worshiping themselves, their own pride. Naturalist has no capacity to know a God outside of nature. You can't conceive of a God outside of nature because the lights aren't turned on yet. You don't know the Lord. Naturalists will fixate on icons of the world, um, celebrities, um, the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. That's their religion. They believe the lies of health, wealth, and happiness. That's why they're so guilt-infested because these things are undelivered promises and their consciences are killing them. They'll give anything to have relief from a guilty conscience. I just added that, but okay. Point two, a spiritually-minded person will worship the God of Scripture. You know Jesus personally. You believe um, in a world that supersedes this one, a kingdom that's not of this world. You know and trust the promises of Scripture. You're looking for eternity with an eternal audience with God in heaven, Um, And you have the deposit of the Holy Spirit in your life so you can enjoy people and relationships in God and in church like you never thought you could before. You invest in others and you invite unbelievers to believe because this is true treasure and wealth that you have. Let me just add this. If you have the mind of Christ, you think differently about the world, you think differently about politics, you think differently about suffering, and you have the capacity for joy and peace and most of all hope in the Lord. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ versus being a naturalist, which is someone who only has the capacity to live according to the flesh.